Good morning, church. How's everyone this morning? Good. It's glad to see all of your smiling faces, especially everyone in the back. And those of you joining us online, we appreciate you being with us this morning. Um, my name is Dan. I'm one of the elders here. And um, it's a great honor to be able to serve at this church as, a, as one of the elders. Um, for some of you, elder might be a little bit peculiar. That might not be necessarily part of your church experience, but I can assure you I'm nobody special. If you doubt that, my mother-in-law Polly is right there. You can talk to her after service. Um, there's a lot of great things happening in this church. Among those are a lot of weddings that have been breaking out. We have our newlyweds back, Hannah and Will, and we married off two others. And I'd also like to acknowledge we have an anniversary of 29 years with Amy and Grant today. So let's give them a round of applause. Well, we continue in the book of Titus, and Titus is a very interesting book, as you're going to see as we kind of explore this a little bit deeper. Um, but I want you to all stand, if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, as we read our verse for today. It comes from Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself for a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Now, you may wonder, why do we stand for the word of God? Well, the reason that we do is out of respect. We kind of like to think maybe we're standing on holy ground, but we're really not. This is just commercial carpet. But what I want you to understand, whenever the word of God is, is spoken, there's a lot more to it than probably what we initially understand at first reading. You have to remember that all of this was conceived and inspired by the greatest intellect in all of the universe. And probably it's unfair to even refer to God as an intellect because we have a lot of students and it's amazing we have smart kids at this church, right? They're all becoming engineers. And one of the things that you have to understand, God didn't just understand math, he created math. He didn't just discover gravity, he created gravity. He didn't just put things into space, he created space. Everything that we understand, every intellectual concept comes from the mind of God. And the more you understand that, and the more that you understand kind of the boundaries of where we're at in science, the more I think at least that it, it demonstrates the truth of the Word of God. For example, we know from the great minds of this world as we plunge into the very edges of, of what we call reality, that there are these little things in the universe called superstrings. And superstrings are these little vibrating strings, and they think that that's the smallest component of everything that we know. Well, you can ask anybody on the worship team, what happens when you vibrate a string? Makes a sound, right? And in Genesis 1, what do we begin to hear? And God spoke, and as he spoke, it came to be. Are these residual superstrings basically the residual effect of when God spoke and created the entire universe? Perhaps. And these little superstrings give rise to, great, to smaller, well, not smaller, but bigger and bigger particles. But these particles are so infinitesimal that we, I mean, it takes, you know, like a, a hadron collider to even expose these things. 
And from little particles, we keep growing up the scale and we get finally to atoms. And atoms become molecules and molecules become cells and cells become organs and organs become part of systems and systems ultimately result in all of you. Pretty incredible. To think really what I am at the most fundamental level is a series of little vibrating strings. And at the frontiers of reality, what the scientists will tell you is that there are 10 dimensions to what we understand our universe to be. And oddly enough, if you go to Genesis in chapter 1, guess how many times the Bible records, and God said, 10 times. Now, you might think that's coincidence, but the rabbis have a saying. They say coincidence is not a kosher word. In other words, the more and more you delve into this book, the more you begin to realize how absolutely astounding, as we press into the frontiers of science, that it comes more and more into understanding the revelation that God gave to us. This is not some archaic text, right, to be despised. It, it is absolutely the Word of God. And the more you press in, especially you students, you were given study Bibles, right? There's some amazing things. And if you will ask questions, God is not intimidated by you. He's not intimidated by your professors. He's not intimidated by any question you might ask. So I encourage you to press in and keep understanding who God is and how he forms things. One thing that we begin to understand as we understand the creation is God goes from the very small to the very large. That's how he works things out, right? That same fact is true in his word. He takes names, places, concepts, and builds those into bigger and bigger things that we understand. That is always the pattern in the Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, when we talked a couple weeks ago about the fingerprints of God, we talked about several stories. For example, we talk about the story of Abraham and when he sacrifices Isaac. And what do we really learn? We learn this ancient story, but hidden in that ancient story is a greater revelation. It's about the fact that God is able to raise someone from the dead. You can go to other stories, for example, the Exodus story, and what do we see there? We see Israel enslaved in Egypt, God intervening supernaturally to free his people. You see a whole Passover celebration that basically refers, and the Jews to this day celebrate that as this super, well, this divine intervention by God to free his people from slavery. <clears throat> and so over and over again, you're going to see in the Bible that God takes the little and builds on the small. Now, the way that we describe that is the Bible goes from what is called a precept, right, to a concept. So let's talk about what a precept is. A precept is a rule or principle, especially one governing personal conduct. Now, if you've been paying attention in Titus, it has lots of precepts. It tells you a lot of things. We want you to do this. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. And it's important when you read the book of Titus, you may initially just think, well, this is a bunch of instructions on how to do a church to a young pastor. Well, maybe, but you have to understand and you have to remember the greatest intellect in the entire world inspired every word the way that those words are ordered, their placement, and everything about it. And the more you begin to get that concept behind you, the better off you'll be in understanding your Bibles. When we talk about concepts, that means an understanding retained in the mind from experience, reasoning, and imagination. In other words, as God begins to introduce you to precepts, you're gonna turn those precepts into concepts. And then you're gonna take that concept, and it's gonna become a precept, and you're gonna build on that. Now, a lot of times what people will do, you can read the Bible for the very first time and think, perhaps I've got it. Believe me, you can read this book over 
and over and over again because those precepts turn into concepts and those concepts again revert back to a precept and you keep building on that. And if you get together with somebody who's read the Bible for a long time, it gets really fun, right? There, there are things that'll be discussed and ideas that will absolutely blow your mind. So that's why we encourage everyone, read your Bibles, become familiar with it, and it takes a little bit of discipline in order to understand all these things. In fact, the Bible will even tell you, it kind of gives you hints that hidden inside the text are these ideas, right? For example, in Isaiah 28, Isaiah the prophet says, uh, order on order, line on line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little. In other words, what he's saying is God layers the Bible. He's already telling you what he's doing. And if you get to grasp that, all of a sudden, this book will come alive. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says these things, what things? The things written in this book, right, were written for our instruction. Not, it isn't a history. It is an instruction lesson for all of us, whom the end of the ages uh, has come. In other words, the closer that we get to the end of the age, the more and more we'll understand everything that's written for us. But to just think that this is a history lesson is you're, you're basically withholding information from yourself because God in his divine intellect has put these things in place for all of us to discover. And the more you discover, the greater your faith. And the greater your faith, the greater you come to understand your place in the kingdom of God. So inside of Titus, we have a number of precepts. Right? If you remember, and you know, Brian and Alex did a tremendous job at this, there was an introduction to the book, there was a section on the qualification of elders, uh, there was another section on avoiding uh, false teachers and uh, Cretans, um, and then there was another passage two weeks ago, and it was talking about basically learning to do good works. So we're going to review some of these precepts so that ultimately you understand the concept for today's lesson. The first precept is that of a bond slave. When Paul is in introducing uh, this book, he refers to himself as a bond slave. Now, a bond slave, as Brian pointed out, is a doulos. And it's interesting to know the history of that whole principle. So what happened in the ancient world, it was not uncommon. You could become so indebted, you had a debt that was so big, the only way that you could pay it off would be to go work for somebody. And you work for a number of years, and if your debt was too big, you owed millions of dollars, let's say, you might have to be this person's slave forever. Well, what would happen is after you paid off the debt, if, if your debt was of such a proportion, it would be possible then for you basically to have paid off your debt, but you said, hey, this person that I am working for, this person who is my master, is such a respectable person, is such a, a, a person worthy of honor, they've treated me, my family, whatever the case may be, with such honor, I am basically going to bind myself to the house. So what they would do is they would, the slave would go to the house and they would take at the doorpost and they'd get an awl, a sharp pick, and pierce your ear to the doorpost. And then they'd put a gold ring in that earring. And it was a sign of honor among all the slaves. It's like, I'm not a slave like everybody else is a slave. I'm a bond slave, which is very unique because I have freely committed my will to the service of this house. So did Paul have his ear pierced? I mean, where'd he go, to the temple? No. He basically was referring to this whole precept, right, that I have understood who I am, and I am going to voluntarily now turn my life over to the living God, and I will serve his will, right? Paul was not in bondage. Paul was an entirely free man. But he understood the concept of a bond slave, and we need to understand that as well. In fact, 
One of the things I think in, in my conversion, I, w- I was uh, raised in the Catholic Church. I went to parochial school. I was an altar boy, went through confirmation, all of this stuff, right? Very religious little kid. When I graduated, I kind of went my own way. Matter of fact, I think for probably two weeks, I was in a philosophy class, and the, the teacher convinced me, and I was an atheist. But after two weeks, it's kind of like, wait a minute, some of this stuff doesn't make sense. But I realized I didn't know the Bible, right? All I had was a faith in God. And maybe some of you, that's true, right? We, we can be raised in a religious household and never come to a true understanding. And what kind of really helped me was I had people who were willing to study the Bible with me and explain to me that I was a slave. And my immediate reaction is, you've got to be kidding me. I've never been a slave to anybody. Well, as you begin to study the Bible, you understand this concept that we think we're free to do whatever we want to do, but in fact, we're in bondage. We're in bondage to sin. And when somebody tells you that you're a slave for the very first time, you just kind of ridicule them. In fact, it was very similar at the time of Jesus. In John chapter 8, we read uh, Jesus talking with the Pharisees. Jesus said, say to those Jews who believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The whole idea of slavery is in the Bible. There are some people who will condemn that. As Brian told us two weeks ago, God is never in favor of slavery. He will allow that, con- that precept, right, to teach you a concept. And that concept is very important. As a matter of fact, if you read from the story of Abraham, before he puts Abraham to sleep, or at the time he puts him to sleep, he says, your people are going to, your descendants are going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Now, you have to ask the question, why would God allow his people to be enslaved in Egypt for that long of a period of time? Matter of fact, if you ever get a chance to attend a Passover Seder, you'll see that they commemorate, they don't, I mean, they they remember it, But from the standpoint, they always remember where they came from. And that is really important because what the Bible teaches us, mankind was created free, but something happened at the creation, and we became enslaved. We didn't realize that because it's very deceiving, the the circumstance that we're in. Like my friend Ed likes to say, he says, you know the worst thing about deceit? It's very deceiving, right? You don't realize that you are subject to this at the time that it's happening. Matter of fact, when you go back to the early church, you find that a number of the early Christians, our brothers and sisters, were slaves. Why did it appeal to them? It's like, well, some people say, well, because they had nothing better to do. It's like, I don't think that's the case. I think they were so, in, you know, so close to the situation that when somebody said, you're enslaved, they said, oh, yeah, I understand that, Not more, even more so than just my physical circumstance, right? I am a slave to sin. I like doing everything that the world claims. I like living for myself. I don't care how you feel, right? It's all about my happiness. And when that becomes your perspective, you will pursue sin just to make sure that you're happy and you become very self-centered. And the Bible says that's not how you were created. You were created for much greater things. Next precept in uh, Titus is when uh, Paul talks about eternal life. And he says, God who cannot life talked about eternal life long ago. So this is our first table question today. I want you to get together with everybody at your table, and I want you to figure out, and when you have the answer, just raise your hand, when in the Bible was the first time that God spoke of eternal life? 
I'll give you about a minute. Ryan, could I have my... No fair turning to the back of the index and looking up the word eternal life. Remember, when you get the answer, just raise your hand so I know your table has figured this out. And I guess if we had planned this better, we could have that little Jeopardy jingle play, right? Do, 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 do. Now, if you're paying attention, I gave you a few clues earlier. What's that? We have a hand. Okay, we have one hand. You only got a little bit longer to go, right? And we're going to start calling on you, and you're going to have to answer. So we'll see what you get. Okay, time's up. So we're going to come over here to our resident theologians, right? <laughs> Ethan just, just completed Bible college, right? So a year. It's okay. In, in one year, they should have at least taught you about eternal life. So when's the, first, when's the first time the Bible speaks of eternal life? Want to take a stab at it? Let's give that guy a round of applause. That's, a, that's an impressive answer. My friend Ed had his hand up back there. Ed, what's the answer? Okay, very good. That's a really good answer. Okay, anybody else want to take a stab? Right? Go ahead, Alicia. Okay. Okay, very good. All good answers. It's fascinating in the Bible, right? You've got the story, for example, of Abraham. You've got the story in Exodus. You get story after story. God keeps talking about eternal life all the time. And when you get back to Genesis, you begin to get these hints, right? God is starting to convey this. And I guess the answer, or at least the thought that came to my mind, is in the creation, God works for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests, right? And when, if you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews will say this whole idea of rest 
and the Sabbath are intertwined. God embedded in his creation in the very days of our week, one day at the end of the week, to be a time of rest. <clears throat> and Hebrews says that is signifying this time of eternal rest for all of creation. And that's very interesting to know. <clears throat> right? Um, it's also fascinating, isn't it, that the entire world uses a seven-day calendar? Just as Genesis says, nobody has a 10-day week, nobody has an 8-day week. We all use seven days. And in the seventh day, that's very important because you have to understand the whole idea of a Sabbath, right? At the end of six comes the Sabbath day, and it is a time of rest. Now, you've learned a little bit about slavery. You've learned a little bit about eternal life. Those are two precepts. We're going to take those precepts, combine them into a concept that's in the Bible again. So just like we talk about on the seventh day is a Sabbath, there's also a Sabbath of uh, years, right? So on the seventh year, interestingly enough, the Bible says in Exodus 21.2, if a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, but on the seventh, he shall leave as a free man without payment to you. So even in the whole idea and the, the civil code regarding slavery, God is embedding a precept to you, and he's saying after six years of service on the seventh, you get to go free. Again, it's a Sabbath of years on the seventh year, right? So God is trying to get you to understand and, and, and basically put into your mind, on the Sabbath, all the slaves go free. That's an important concept. Now, after seven sets of seven years, you get another thing, and it's called a jubilee. And a jubilee was called the restoration of all things. It didn't occur exactly on the 7th, 7th, which would have been 49. It occurred on the 50th year. And so God is trying to communicate to us in all of these precepts this whole idea when eternity, when eternal life comes, slavery stops. And not only does slavery stop, the restoration of all things will begin. And that's a very important concept. Because certain things were created, and we have to understand that to appreciate everything that God has done, and we're going to talk about more about, about that in a minute. The next precept that we find in the book of Titus is about elders. And for a lot of us, maybe our religious experience or background is such that we don't use elders. But nonetheless, the Bible describes this process where several men are, are basically appointed in, in a church to watch over and guard the church. So why would God need somebody guarding the church? Well, one of the reasons you need somebody standing at the gate, so to speak, is to guard the precepts. Why do I need to guard the precepts? Well, if you've been paying attention, our culture is attacking everything that God says. And sometimes we think, well, the Bible is just antiquated. It really doesn't mean anything. You've got to think a little bit bigger. What's happening is, is these precepts are under attack because if somebody can change the precepts of the Bible, guess what? You'll never get the concepts. And the concepts are the key to your understanding of who you are and why you're here. The next concept or precept, excuse me, that it goes to, and it's kind of an interesting little verse, right? Paul alludes to this whole idea of cretins. Brian told you about that. He says there's probably more to the idea of Cretans than just these people from the Isle of Crete. And what does he call them? He says they're liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. Now, again, you have to remember, 
This is by the greatest intellect of the world, right? So he, there's more to be said than just this group of people who like to eat, drink, and, and sleep. This whole idea is that there are people among you that are liars, that are going to tell you things that are not true. And the elders are in there to make sure the Cretans don't get a stronghold on you. You can go to lots of places. You can go find lots of different sayings and things on the Internet, social media, that are going to talk to you and lie to you, especially about the Word of God. Why do they want to do that? Because they want to deceive you. Because if they can deceive you, guess what? You become their slave. And there's a lots of people, lots of, like, talking like an Italian here, there's a lot, a lot of people, right, who are spending enormous amounts of money to control your life and to basically enslave you. It isn't obvious, right? But there are a number of control mechanisms to keep you from being free in the freedom that Jesus Christ intended for your life. You also have to understand we have an enemy. His name is Satan. We refer to him in that name, right? What is he about? What is Satan's goal for you? What does he want for your life? Right? Bible says he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So you're going to go out, right, especially if you get into college, you're going to go off, have some fun, do some things you probably regret in the morning. But it's all going to seem very fun. But what really is Satan trying to do? He's trying to steal the relationships you should have. He's trying to kill friendships. He's trying to destroy your life. And in all of that, it's fascinating, isn't it? While he's sitting there making slaves, he convinces us that we're all having a great time. What does he tell you? He tells you, go find yourself. That's the meaning of the whole purpose behind life in this world, according to Satan. I want you to find out who you are. The Bible is diametrically opposed to everything that he says. What does God want for you? He wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to become his son or daughter, but how does he achieve that? He tells you to take up your cross, right? He doesn't tell you to go out and have a fun time. It's like, well, then why would I ever want to be a Christian? It doesn't make sense. Why should I give up all the fun that I should have? Because when you give that up, then you will truly understand life. It isn't in serving ourselves that we find fulfillment. It's when we serve others. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him. That's the key to understanding the kingdom of God. But we are easily deceived. There's an interesting story about a young man who was born in the 1700s. He had a very devout mother, and a, uh, his father was a seafaring captain. His mother prayed that he would one day enter the ministry, right? But she died when he was six years old. His father was very stern, very harsh, and this young man basically rebelled against all authority. He became difficult to deal with and ultimately got pressed into service by the British Navy. He was so cantankerous while in service that his shipmates and captains left him off on the west coast of Africa. I don't know whether to die, but it's like we've had enough of you and we aren't putting up with your nonsense. So they dropped him off. He was found by a slave trader. And ironically enough, the slave trader, guess what? Made him his slave. And he served as that man's slave for a number of years until finally he was rescued by the British Navy. And as he was traveling around uh, the coast of England, he became engulfed in a very violent storm. In that violent storm, he feared for his life. And he began to cry out to God, save me, right? Because he feared death. Interestingly enough, there was a hole in his ship, and as he prayed, 
the cargo shifted and one of the containers shifted into that hole and plugged the leak. He saw it as a sign from God and therefore determined to, to live his life for God. However, the, the job that he was in, he was a, a slave merchant. And after a number of years, he began to regret that he ever engaged in the slave trade. He gave his life to God. He became an Anglican minister, and he wrote perhaps one of the most famous hymns of all time called Amazing Grace. And in that song, what does he say? He says, I once was blind, but now I see. For many of us, it's like, I see. I'm not blind. Tell me, how do you see the world? Right? I'm not lost. It took a little while for John to realize, John Newton, right, that he indeed was lost and needed to be found. Everything in his life completely changed, and ultimately he was one of the persons responsible for the emancipation of the slavery from England. It's important that you understand some of these precepts, because if you don't get it, you don't understand where you've been. You won't understand where you're going. And God does this over and over again in the Scriptures. He allows us to see certain things so that we gain a better understanding. The next thing that Alex then talked about was some of the heresies that were going on, right, between the Judaizers, who came in and told the early Christians that there was more to being saved than was necessary. Never listen to anybody who's trying to tell you through a religious means that there's other ways to be saved, that there's anything aside from Jesus Christ. That's a very important precept to understand. And to that end, we have elders, hopefully, who watch over and make sure that none of these heresies exist in our church. You have to have men who have a reliable character and who understand when some of these things begin to take place so that they protect us from all of that. The last precept that we saw in Titus is that of good works. Paul goes through and instructs Titus, tell the old men to do this, tell the older women to do this, tell the younger men to do this. And he gives very practical instruction about what all of us are to engage in. And those things are basically good works. Right? We have to understand and come, well, really to this understanding of good works. But there's more to good works than just doing something for the sake of doing something. In other words, it's great if all of us learn to do something to serve in the church, but there's more to it than that, right? There's more to a good work than just trying to get involved because what is it that God is trying to do to you, right? What is it that he's trying to achieve in you? And that brings us to our second table question. Tell me why God created you. And I'm going to take two things off the table. You can't say because he loves me, and you can't say as an object of his affection. So now tell me, why were you created? You have one minute.
If you come up with the answer, raise your hand. All right. Hunter, what'd you come up with? To worship God. Okay, very good answer. Anybody else have anything different? Grant? To love God and to love others. Great answer. Okay, to worship God and to do good works. To glorify God. Go ahead, Zach. Sorry? For his pleasure, okay? To make disciples. All of these great answers. If you look in Genesis 126, you're going to find an interesting answer that probably isn't talked about enough. It says, You were created to rule over the earth. Now all of the megalomaniacs are going like this, right? This is great. If you don't understand what that means, you'll never understand good works. And the way that we come to understand this is you have to look at the ministry of Jesus. What was Jesus, why did he come to the, this earth? Ultimately to be the king of this earth, right? So if he's the king and he's the ruler and you were created to be a ruler, you need to be just like Jesus. It's like, okay, what did Jesus do? He healed the sick, healed the blind, right? Made people to see, the deaf to hear. It's like, well, I don't possess all of that. One of the things that you're going to understand about Jesus Christ, whenever he did things, people were amazed, astonished, stunned. They're sitting there going, why did you do this, right? And the more that they came to understand his nature and what his purpose was on this earth, right, to restore his kingdom. And over and over again, he talked about this kingdom. So if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you've got to learn to rule and reign. But what does that mean? That means in your good works, you're going to do what? means I'm just going to help out? Am I going to put away the chairs? Well, yeah, that's a good thing, right? Because you need to learn to do that. You need to learn to be the lowest of the, of the servants because he who is faithful in a little is faithful in much. But ultimately, what you want to do is you want to learn to stun people. Like stun them? You mean like with a phaser? No. What you want to do is you want to engage in, in works that are so good that somebody will look you in the eye I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing, and it takes a, a while to do this. You don't start off with this, but they will look at you and say, why did you do this for me? And when you see that begin to happen, it is a tremendous thing. That changes people's perspective. That changes people's lives. But all of us have to grow in that, and we grow in that by starting off doing the simple things. Here at church, we help out with the AV, right? We get on the worship team. But that's not enough. Sorry, that's not enough. Because your expected, your goal, the reason you were created was ultimately to rule and to reign as a great king or queen. That when people sit back and say, wow, that's amazing. And we don't do it for our own self-satisfaction. We do it for the glory of God, right? That's how we worship him. That's how we bring him glory by doing works that become so amazing, and all of us are capable of doing that. We've seen that at Rock Creek Church already, right? It's interesting when you have the people come in for the foster care Christmas party, and they look at you and they say, why are you guys doing this? People don't do this in the world. It is strange. It's like, you guys have another motive, don't you? It's like, nope, we're just trying to bless you. When we did the whole thee before me, I mean, there were people who had tears in their eyes going, why were you doing this? It's because this is what we do, right? 
And as we engage in good works, it isn't always unicorns and rainbows. Sometimes you're going to engage in good works, and it's going to be incredibly difficult. I can't tell you how proud I am of our pastor, Brian, who in his good works was willing to become a chaplain for the Boulder County Police Department. Little did he know shortly thereafter that he would engage in something that would be perhaps one of the most difficult things in his life. And I praise God for Brian, right, because he picked the right guy at the right time, and Brian grew from a young man understanding these principles. He did the easy things, and he kept getting more and more involved until you do things that absolutely stun people. It's like, Brian, why did you do this? And we're all capable of doing that. As we work together, as we come to know one another, God will release amazing things in this church. Next week, we're going to have a potluck. Anybody know what day that is? Well, that's a good answer, but it isn't the right answer. And Ed is concerned about the right answer. According to the way the Jews celebrate their holidays, after the Feast of First Fruits, which we call uh, Easter, there was a period of 50 days. And what happens 50 days from the resurrection? Pentecost. We're going to have a Pentecost potluck. Right? When the church was born, and we didn't even plan it this way, right? When I found this out, I just started laughing and praising God. It's like unbelievable, right? <clears throat> so what happened at, at Pentecost? And why is it called Pentecost? It's 50 days after. Well, remember, if you understand your precepts, you'll get your concepts. What happens after a period of 50? Jubilee. Jubilee. And what is the Jubilee? The restoration of all things. So what happened? After the resurrection, and, and in the Bible it talks about God releasing the captives. In other words, he was releasing the slaves, those who were in bondage. And 50 days later, he was going to restore all things. And what happened at Pentecost? Fire alighted upon the Christians. It's like you were restored to your proper place that you lost at the fall. And what were you given? You were given the Holy Spirit to make that happen. All of this becomes really incredible. I mean, if you go back through the book of Titus, let's go back through that real quick. So we're a bunch of bond slaves, right? We have basically all incurred a debt we could not pay. And the biblical way that you get that resolved, either you serve out the sentence, which is what most of us have to do, or you get somebody to pay your debt. That process is called redemption. So when you see that word, it means somebody came along and paid my debt debt. I couldn't pay it because it was too much. He talks about eternal life. Why is that so important? Because it's a promise of God. He created us to rule and to reign forever. If you think you're going to go to heaven and you're just going to play a harp on a cloud, you are sadly mistaken. Matter of fact, we talk about this at our potluck or, or even after church, we want you to meet one another. Why do we want to do that? I mean, that's uncomfortable. It's not very fun. You know, I'm just not that kind of person. Well, guess what? If you believe in eternal life, all these people that you are sitting here with, you are going to spend forever with. So you might as well get to know their names, right? After the first hundred billion years, you will know them intimately, and we're just getting started, right? That is amazing to contemplate. We have elders as gatekeepers, right? God wants his flock protected. 
He wants the precepts maintained so that you get the concepts. Because the more concepts you understand, the greater you understand your calling in Jesus Christ. There are two people who are, after, who are trying to make it so you don't get concepts. There are the Cretans, who are the liars, the evil beasts, all the ways of the world. They're going to tell you that everything this book has to say is nonsense. They're going to try to change every precept and try to eliminate it. When God says up, they're going to say down. Why do they want to do that? Because if you understand disinformation, the way you make that work is you tell as many lies as you can so you confuse everybody. Finally, well, also it talks about the heretics, the ideas that come in within the church. And those things happen, right? Churches get distracted. Churches suddenly decide we're going to go after this thing or, or that thing. But it's important that all of us understand this because if we all understand this, we aren't going to go off track. And hopefully all of our leaders will help us with that. Finally, it talks about good works. And hopefully you understand good works in a new perspective today. Not just, hey, I'm going to help out and I'm going I'm to do some chairs. We want you to do that. We want you to help out in every way that you can. But as you continue to grow, pretty soon you're going to keep taking the next step, and that's why we talk about that as our mission. And once you keep growing year after year after year, pretty soon these things become more and more relevant to you and become more and more obvious because your precepts turn into concepts. And you continue to do this until you start to be just like Jesus Christ. You start to do things you never imagined that you had the ability to do. It will give more purpose, more joy, more understanding. You will be a greater blessing to the entire world around you if you can understand that and make that come to pass. So you need to understand all those precepts so you could understand this verse that we started out with. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Why do you need grace? One, because we're sinners. Two, when we engage in ministry, we're gonna make lots of mistakes. We're gonna say things we didn't mean to say. Somebody's gonna have their feelings hurt. Somebody's gonna be upset. We gotta have grace with one another because we're after something far bigger than any of us ever imagined. He continues on, bringing salvation to all men. You can't understand that you're saved until you're lost. You can't understand all that God has for you until you realize what the world has done to you, how it has deceived you, how it has manipulated you, how it has caused you not to see the kingdom of God in the correct way. And Jesus Christ is there to make that happen. He's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. All of us are subject to this. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner saved by grace. There's nothing special about me, right? The sooner all of us admit that, the better off we all are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. People need to look at us and see something totally different. When they come in these doors, they say, you people are different. I don't quite know what that is, but I can tell you're different. All of your friends should see that. All of your family members should see that. Hopefully, everybody you come in contact should see that you're a different person than anybody else they've ever met. It says, in this present age, and when he says in this present age, that means there's another age to come, the whole idea of eternal life. <clears throat> He says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Not just a hope, but a blessed hope. Do you think about that? Do you think about when is Jesus going to return? Most of us, maybe we, you know, not so much. Are we getting close to the end? I don't know. We're closer than we were yesterday, right? And when we talk about the works of Jesus Christ, he was stunning, right? I mean, every time somebody heard him talk, they said, we've never heard anybody talk like this before. 
And I'll tell you what, he did miracles that amazed and, and astonished, not just for the sake of that, because he was trying to reveal the kingdom of God. And when he rose from the dead, he stunned the entire world. He changed it permanently. It was such a dramatic effect, we had to change the calendar to, to acknowledge that. But something even more stunning is going to happen. One day, right, we don't know when, Jesus will return. It will be a time of great distress. It will be a time when people no longer even think about or acknowledge God. And when he shows up, they're going to just be amazed. It's like I never knew. Matter of fact, I remember being a young Christian. Came across this verse, and it always intrigued me. It says, and every eye shall see him. It's like, okay, how do you do that? The world is round. Do you change the space-time continuum? How do you do that? I mean, but now we have technology, right? And guess what? This silly little thing that's in all of our pockets, one day maybe we'll be looking at that, and this thing will go off with an emergency alert, and we're going to look, and every eye will see him. I don't know if that's the case, but I like to ponder that. He gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. If you don't understand the debt that you're in, if you don't understand your own slavery, you'll never understand redemption. He paid the greatest price for the greatest gift you could ever be given. Eternal life is so incredible. Matter of fact, the Bible says it's beyond our imagination. I don't know about you, but I can get pretty crazy about what I can think that might be like. We know when somebody gives us a gift, how valuable the gift is, basically by the price that they paid for it. That doesn't mean the only good gifts are, are expensive gifts, don't get me wrong. But one thing you have to understand, sometimes a gift can be determined by its value. And you've been given the greatest gift in all the world because it costs more than anything. All the gold in the world, all the cattle on a thousand hills, <clears throat> God can create with the breath of his mouth. He can speak it into existence. But he loves you so much, he gave you the greatest gift of all time. The Bible goes on and it says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Why does God want you? Well, he loves me. Why does he love me? Because you were created to rule and to reign with him forever and ever. Do I understand all the implications of that? No, I don't, but it's amazing. That is a concept that blows me away every time I consider it, right? You are a pearl of great price. Sometimes we can sit back and say, I'm just unworthy. We're all unworthy, but we're the prize. God loves you so much, he gave his only begotten son. That is an amazing idea. And what does he want out of the deal? He wants you to be zealous for good works. Well, what does it mean to be zealous? It means filled or showing a strong, energetic desire to get something done. It isn't like, well, when I get around to it, I'll, you know, maybe I'll volunteer for this group or that thing, or maybe I'll join a house church. No, be zealous, right? Leave here today determined I'm going to be different. I'm going to change. When we have our Pentecost potluck, right? Figure out what can I do? What, what can I bring? Bring something great. It's not, you know, don't bring chip and dip. It's like, okay, I'm going to do something great. Why? Because these are my friends. I'm going to live with them for all eternity. I'm going to show you how special you are to me. That's how we love one another. We're going to be just like Jesus. We're going to be zealous for the will of the Father. And finally, Paul concludes telling Titus, these things 
Speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's my sincere prayer that today that's what I've done for you. Hopefully I've shown you some things about the Bible you maybe never considered. I hope that I've inspired you, right, to be willing to deny ungodliness, to lead a life zealous for good works, knowing that the price that's been paid for you is beyond our imagination and understanding. So I'm going to pray with everyone at the conclusion here. But if there's anything on your heart, if you feel moved at all today, if you want more information about how to become a Christian, if you want to learn about different things, how to get involved, come down and talk to us. There's the elders, there's the staff, there's lots of people here. We'll be happy to help you get on track so that you can understand the purpose that God has for your life that's incredible beyond your wildest imaginations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and how it reveals who you are. It's so amazing the things that <clears throat> you put in order, the way you say things, the way you do things, the things that you have for us. And, and we look at ourselves and there's nothing special about us. Rock Creek is just this little itty bitty church, right? We have a dirt parking lot. We try, we believe in your word, right? We understand that we're sinful and we'll do everything we can to be in line to understand the precepts, Father, so that you can reveal your concepts and transform in all of us who are here this desire to do good deeds, to be a light in a dark, dark world, to be just like your son, Jesus Christ, so that when people see us, they see Jesus. When they see us and they see the things that we do, they can't help but think, why are you doing this? And when they say that, we will have a response because you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And to you, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.